0: I killed the last honorable man 15 years ago. Since then, you've seen his porch from downstairs?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is your mouth all glued up with honey juice? I asked you a question. I said I seen it, sir. <laughs> oh, you got a murderous rage in you. I like it. Oh, it's life. Boiling up inside of you It's good. Welcome to the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the film collaborations between Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio. Show me all the blue. Show me all the blueprints. Join Garrett. You don't say that name, Matt. I haven't slept for fucking weeks. And they're returning Michael Garnieri, That's a Rather high strung chap. As they look at the cinematic feats of the combined talents from the famed director and big star. We're taking home cold hard cash via commission, motherfucker. All coming up only on Percolated Media. This is bad for everybody. What's next, dead politicians?
2: They departed. Released October 6, 2006. Budget, $90 million. Box office, an impressive $291 million. And the director, of course, is Martin Scorsese. And here we are. This is a big one, I think. This is, in fact, his biggest movie in terms of box office up to this point in his career. And, of course, this is the one that gets him the Oscar. After many, many years and many failed attempts, many nominations that left him uh, empty-handed at the end of the day, this is the one where he gets his little gold friend, Garrett and Matt. I'm excited for this one. I've got the quotes page on IMDb opened up, and i got it ready to go, baby.
3: Yeah, we'll discuss at the end whether these uh, gold statues were deserved, but uh, I'm excited to get into this one as well. Mike, I have picked myself off the canvas after last week. We're gearing up to talk some departed. Spoiler alert, I'm a little more positive on this one than I was last week. Kind of
4: hard to be any less positive based on that (laughs) previous conversation. I'm looking forward to this about as much as I would be going to a Yankees-Red Sox game on opening night. This is the, I'm not going to call it the holy grail of my anticipation, but if you asked me, if we could have done these movies in any conversational order, I would have gone for this one first.
2: That's interesting.
4: And I think that
2: this is a movie where I feel like the reactions on this one, there's a pretty broad range of how people react when this concerned, where generally the reactions are pretty, you know, positive from people who are into film. I think there's a pretty broad range on this one because there's some people who really think this is not among his best and that it, certainly that its success was kind of weirdly kind of anomalous, and then there's people who would put it really high up there. And uh, I actually just watched Infernal Affairs the other night, so that gives me a whole new reference point for this movie, which I'd never had before. I guess we should maybe get into the very sort of unique genesis of this movie.
3: Yeah, we will, but let's talk about when I saw this. I saw this again. I've seen every single one of these in theaters, and when I came out of this in 2006, I was extremely high on it. I talked it up. I was uh, happy when it won Oscars, and I'd only seen it once. I have the Blu-ray. I have bought the Blu-ray since. And as to say, future viewings didn't really keep that high uh, aesthetic going for me, my high opinion of it. I'm not going to say whether it, it's cooled or not, but it, I, I have a different feeling on this than I did back in 2006. But back then when I came out of it, I was like, man, that blew me the fuck away.
2: That's interesting. That's the opposite of mine. Not to give away too much of my reaction at this early stage, but that's sort of it's not quite the opposite of my reaction. But this is a film that I have generally each time I rewatch it, I get a little bit hotter on it. Or at least, I don't know, it's maybe reached a plateau at the point, like, it's hard to get too much more positive, but definitely each time I see it, there's some other bit of it that really hits me as being a successful element that I hadn't previously considered.
3: And then when I, when this came out on DVD, initially, me and my parents were living in different states, and I actually bought this for my dad for Christmas, and my mom said that he watched it a lot. When he passed away, guess who inherited that copy? I still have that, so I have the Blu-ray and the DVD in my possession.
2: This is, like, prime DVD era. This is like 2006, just before the, or you know, two years before the financial crash. It ended up being a a major. No one ever talks about that. That ended up being kind of the permanent handicapping of the DVD and just home video, other than streaming industries in general. But that's its own conversation for another day. I've got my own ten part Mm. podcast for that one.
1: No, (laughs) don't,
4: don't go looking for it. There was also the HD DVD debacle that eventually, oh yes, succeeded to blu-ray i don't think this is one of the movies that got an hd dvd release it might have but i do own the blu-ray as well so my reaction i have a third reaction that is different from you two in that i saw it and my opinion has remained unchanged in the 15 years over 15 now at this point point. and I've, I've seen this movie quite a few times a proximity of where i live you know this is shot in boston which is the opposite of Martin Scorsese. You know, the consummate New York filmmaker makes a movie about Boston, and it's not entirely uncompromised. There are some New York components that we'll talk about that crack me up if you know the the behind-the-scenes and some of the, the cult of personality involved with this movie. But this was a big deal for me when I first saw it. And let me begin by saying, Mike, that reaction you talk about, I think that's akin to any time a movie is given Best Picture, there's always that retroactive mentality of oh it wasn't that good or did it deserve it? I think any time you put awards in the conversation, it will affect certain people's perceptions for better or for worse. It'd be interesting to know if this didn't win and Scorsese had, had still to this day had never won, how this would be viewed in his purview.
2: Yeah, and that's always that's an interesting one if if this hadn't won, like what well, would would Hugo have swept? You know what I mean? Would the Irishman <laughs> have swept? Who knows? You know?
3: Yeah.
2: It's weird how just the winds kind of come together in a particular time. You know what I'm saying? Everything just kind of hit in the right way at the right time for that to be the moment for the film and for Scorsese. And like I said, this was his biggest financial success. I didn't see this movie... Since then, he's broken that record twice, I think. But I didn't see this movie in theaters at the time. And I think I I was just... I think I was 13 when it came out. Yeah, 13, almost 14. I wasn't seeing very many R-rated films in theaters at that point and then that i think that kind of changed the next year because i definitely remember seeing i saw no country for old men and there was blood and all kinds of stuff in 2007 but i, de- I definitely did not see this one in theaters but I, I as soon as it came out on dvd i definitely got it and i don't remember if that was before or after the academy awards that year but this was one of the earliest corset films that i saw actually
3: Yeah. And so you mentioned Infernal Affairs. Now, how exactly did this end up in Scorsese's hands?
2: There's a film called, it's actually not called Infernal Affairs in Hong Kong. That's the the name that was given to it by the American distributor, which is kind of a lame pun when you think about it. But there's a Hong Kong film that was released in 2002, directed by Andrew Lau and Alan Mack. And it was a huge hit in Hong Kong. It's about basically what this film is about there's a cop and he goes undercover in organized crime and there's a gangster and he's sent to infiltrate the police and they each have to try and figure out who the other one is. And a lot of cell phone based antics ensue. And it was a huge hit in Hong Kong and Brad Pitt saw it. I don't know if he saw it in Hong Kong or if you saw it on DVD or something, but Brad Pitt saw it. And he thought this is prime material for a remake. It's a pretty kind of universally understandable premise. It's not based in a particular... I mean, everything is based a little bit in the cultural context from which it it emerges from. But it's not so wedded to Hong Kong that it can't be remade in America. And he actually bought the remake rights with his production company with the intention, from what I can tell, the intention was he was going to star in it potentially the other guy would be Tom Cruise. From what I have read, that seems to have been the plan. And it seems like Cruise was never actually that interested. But Pitt was attached. He's still the producer on the film, so he has an Oscar for Best Picture for having produced this film. Interesting. So, yeah, so Pitt produced it. He was going to star in it. And they bring on this writer, William Monaghan, who is a, a screenwriter and had been a novelist. And at that time, he was kind of an up-and-coming Screenwriter, he had written Kingdom of Heaven, the Ridley Scott film. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and he's Irish-American, and he's from Boston, and he was the one who kind of came up with that whole angle on it of, let's set it in Boston, sort of Irish Catholic identity, bring in this whole angle where the mob boss character in the film is kind of based on the real gangster Whitey Bulger, who at the time, was it was unknown if he was even like alive or dead, Monahan comes up at that angle, and they send the script to Scorsese, and he likes it, and he thinks it's ripe for... Yeah, he, he says it would be a good project, and he sees it as an attempt to do a kind of 40s or 50s style B-movie crime thriller in the vein of, like, what Samuel Fuller was doing, what Raoul Walsh was doing, films like The White Heat with James Cagney and a lot of the film noirs of the era like the Phoenix City Story which I think was a Phil Carlson film these are a lot of movies that I really love like I really I'm really into gangster movies and film noir from that era especially the really cheapo ones that are like you find it on TCM and you're like who the fuck are these at? I've never even heard of this guy and you watch it and it ends up blowing you away and he says that it was his kind of tribute to those sorts of films but as he describes it Once you start putting Leonardo DiCaprio and Matt Damon and Jack Nicholson into your movie, it quickly does not become a B movie. You know, just by definition becomes something else. And it was going to be Pitt and DiCaprio in the two lead roles. And Pitt ultimately decides that he is too old to play the character. And he says he's going to stay on as producer, but he leaves. And Kenneth Lonergan, who actually wrote, or was one of the writers on Gangs of New York. that knows Scorsese. He had just worked with Matt Damon on his film Margaret, and he recommended Matt Damon. Which I don't know. Scorsese needed a special recommendation from someone to suggest Matt Damon to him. It's a movie set in Boston. It's like you know they needed a, a white guy of a certain age. Like they really
1: the yeah. yeah.
4: It's kind of a natural choice. And Ben Affleck was not yet having his resurgence. He was yes. still kind of he was still a punching bag at this time.
1: Oh yeah. Definitely.
4: So. Between the two, and you have the other big Bostonian actor representative already in this
3: movie.
1: Right.
4: So it it makes sense, although the funny thing is it's not like Brad Pitt is considerably older than Matt Damon.
3: Yeah, I was thinking about that. Because Matt
4: Damon's now in his 50s. Brad Pitt's probably in his late 50s at this point. There's, so. there's seven years difference, which is not
2: that much, but I I do kind of see what Pitt would be saying in the sense that like, well, okay, so it's interesting because, I, like I said, I saw the Infernal Affairs, and the two actors in that film, two Hong Kong-based actors are Andy Lau and Tony Leung, and they're both around 40 or so in that movie, so it's it sort of feels they scaled back the ages a bit of the characters in this, and I think that there's a thematic reason for that. I don't want to spend the whole podcast just talking about comparisons to Infernal Affairs. So if, if I start doing that too much, stop me. I just, that I just saw it last night. So it's like very, like the point of comparison is very fresh in my mind. Yeah.
3: No, I want, I want that comparison because I honestly have never seen it. I've always intended to, but that's always been a blind spot with me. So I, I want the comparisons because I'm very curious to know what the difference is. Well, what... I would
4: say that the, as I've seen Infernal Affairs the advantage that this has when you're looking at these movies face value. The Departed is about 45 minutes longer than Infernal Affairs is, so it's really got time. Of
3: course it is. Yeah.
4: Some of these dynamics. And also, there's a major character compression that Scorsese and company did as far as reducing two characters into one. I'll kind of keep the comparisons as small as I can because I really do look at this as as sort of its very much its own thing. And this is also not the first remake Scorsese has ever done. Prior to this, he remade Cape Fear, the 60s movie with Robert Mitchum and Gregory Peck is great. Scorsese took it into an angle where he made it as a critique of 80s slasher movies and sort of made it this very over-the-top, very Grand Gadol style of, of thriller and he kind of takes a similar approach here to The Departed, where yeah, it is a it is a crime movie, but at the end of the day, I would call this a black comedy before I would call it anything else.
2: This movie is so funny.
4: I was sitting there, I rewatched it this
2: morning, and it's so rare that you get just laugh out loud laughter by yourself at fucking 10 a.m. like while watching a, a crime thriller. You know what I mean? I this is kind of a black comedy in a way. It's it, it's so quotable. This is like the fucking most quotable movie. It's like one of the most quotable movies of the past 20 years,
4: I'd say. Oh, try, um, try living around here. It, it, this movie was inescapable.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. The point of comparison with Infernal Affairs is really interesting because I watched Infernal Affairs and what surprised me is how similar it is to this film. And yet the differences are pretty vast. There are scenes in The Departed that are, they're not shot for shot the same as the comparable scenes from Infernal Affairs, but I would call them sort of beat for beat the same in the sense that what happens is exactly what happens. The dynamics within the scene and the way that the rhythm of the scene changes is what happens. Now it's shot in a different way. The camera's in a different place and things like that, but I was really surprised at how similar certain elements were. And then other, and in other ways, it's really kind of, wildly different. Like Matt said, there's two characters who basically get combined into one, and there are other characters who appear in The Departed who don't have any kind of counterpart in Infernal Affairs, and the ending is completely different. Like you said, it's actually a full 50 minutes long. And the ultimate effect, really, is that Infernal Affairs is like, it's under two hours, it's this really tight kind of run-and-gun sort of thriller with no fat on it. What's the plot? Like, get in, get out. Like, if you want to convey something, convey it really quickly. And what I guess I didn't realize until I saw that is how much of The Departed is within the context of a crime thriller. It's so much more character-based than Infernal Affairs. It's so much more about the psychologies of the lead characters and developing the dynamics between the, the, the characters than Infernal Affairs is, which is a lot more... I mean, it's still concerned with that as a component, but there's just less development on those characters. And so much of what the screen time that's been added to this film is, is developing who the Damon and DiCaprio characters are and where they come from.
4: And Infernal Affairs also spawned a couple sequels. It was a very significant movie as far as Hong Kong cinema goes, and kind of was the bridge between
3: sort of the John
4: Woo era, you know, ironically, which Tony Leung has some connection to. They went from really bombastic, these lavish sequences of just bullets flying everywhere and doves, all the trademarks, to something a little bit slicker. Hong Kong sentiment became a lot tighter. Yeah. After this, I think editors really... Their jobs became a lot harder. But it's a very good movie. It's the inverse of what you think of when you approach a remake is I'm of the mindset that you should always focus on remaking bad movies and figure out what they got wrong. So this is kind of the opposite of my mantra.
2: Yeah, and it is interesting whenever there's not a lot of examples of Hollywood remaking a film from a foreign country and doing it well. There's plenty of examples of that turning out bad.
4: Yeah, the inverse. I think of the, the Let the Right One In remake, which is it's closer to Gus Van Zandt's Psycho than The Departed, where it, it, it does, it's not quite sharper shot, sharp, but it, it might as well be.
3: I love that remake. Maybe that's a discussion for another day.
4: The, the Matt Reeves movie, series. I'm not bashing the Matt Reeves movie at all, but that's just, that feels mm-hmm. like okay, we got to contemporize this for American audiences.
3: You don't think this is contemporized?
4: Oh, it absolutely is. It's one of the most popular remakes, too, that people don't know is a remake.
3: Yeah, that's yeah. true. And this is also, I don't
2: know, I should just, I guess, throw this out here. This is Scorsese's last film to be set contemporaneously. Everything he's done since then has been a period piece. I just think that's interesting. There's there's a uh, discussion on Twitter a couple months ago about major directors not making movies during, quote, the iPhone era, unquote, in the sense Mm -hmm. that, like, all of Spielberg's recent movies have been either science fiction films set in the future or historical films set in the past, just like other directors as well and Scorsese falls into that. I don't know what larger point to draw from that, but I just think this this is the most sort of high tech that he's gone in terms of the setting.
4: You run the risk with, with any of these movies when you utilize technology that was groundbreaking at the time of the War Games effect, where you watch it 10 years later and it's borderline unwatchable.
2: Well, I remember at the time somebody on the, IMDb, the late great departed IMDB forums mentioning that uh, they're like, oh, departed is going to age terribly because as soon as you put a cell phone in a movie, three years from now, it's going to be different cell phones. Nobody's even going to be able to understand it. It's going to be like watching ancient history. I That was a very uh, melodramatic reaction.
4: Yeah, tell that to <laughs> Royale, which came out a month after this and also heavily incorporated cell phones.
3: Yeah, and this was the era of the flip phone, oh, so, yes, yeah. I, I mean, it does age it. I will say it automatically ages it. That wasn't me who posted that, but I I, I kind of tend to agree that you watch a movie and you see something, and me and Matt discuss it with horror films all the time, you know? It's like, well, why don't they just pull out a cell phone and call? You can't make a horror film, in a slasher film, in that way anymore. And you can kind of see that here, but I'm not, I going to say right now, I don't think it affects my feeling on the movie overall.
2: No, not at all. I mean, I, mean, I, I, mean it, I think it sets this film in a particular time and place, yeah. which the thing that I really picked up this time watching it is all of the... I think I remember an interview, I didn't read it going into research for this time, so like I, I can't point to where he said it exactly, but I remember reading an interview with Scorsese where he talked about this film being his take on basically on the war on terror, his sort of take on sort of the post-9-11 kind of era. And I, as I was watching it this time... I was noticing all of the Alec Baldwin's character has the American flag lapel pin, and yep. they've got. Oh yeah. yeah he, also, and,
4: he also blatantly says one of my favorite lines of the movie: "I I love the Patriot Act."
2: Right. Yeah. 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 And Damon's wearing the baseball cap with the American flag on it uh, in the bar. There, DiCaprio is framed up against a sticker that's on the wall that like ah, what did it say? It has some sort of patriotic kind of post nine eleven message on it.
3: I just noticed yeah, that but, a lot. Yeah, let's not forget, this was also only five years after, not even five years after 9-11, so... I wonder if uh, it's actually also why this was not set in New York, and why they switched to Boston, because that is a
4: stark contrast. Despite what people think, New York and Boston are two very different cities. Yes, they
2: are. I've never been to Boston.
4: Yeah, if you ever come up and visit, you'll be amazed.
2: All right, well, should we get into it now?
3: Yeah. All let yeah, right. right. Let's, let's, let's dig in. Boston. Yeah, but this very obscure movie that nobody has fucking seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, nobody's seen.
4: Well, Scorsese said
2: Scorsese said this was his first film with a plot. <laughs> <laughs> he said oh. that. That's true. Boston, some years ago, to the sounds of the Rolling Stones' Gimme Shelter, we're introduced yep. to Frank Costello, head of the Irish mob in the city of Boston.
3: <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Right away, right away. Right, right. Stop, 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 stop. The head of the Irish mob. Yeah. Played by Jack Nicholson. <laughs> is Jack Nicholson not Irish? No, he's what is not it? Irish. What is no. It? His mother, so his mother is Irish, English, and German. He, he views himself as Irish. This is somebody you put like Liam Neeson in. Like I think Liam Neeson would have been the perfect candidate for this role. Uh, Jack Nicholson. Look, you get Jack Nicholson and you indulge Jack Nicholson because it's Jack Nicholson. And we'll talk about times where he just went flat out off the script and didn't give a fuck what was on the page and did his own (laughs) fucking thing, which is what he always did. I don't look at him and say, you know, he would make a great head of the Irish mob. But you get him because of his presence. And I want to say right off the bat that this 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 meeting that you're going to talk about between him and Matt Damon's character as a little boy, I think is phenomenal. I love this scene. I love him saying, you know, give him some comic books. Give him some bread. This is Scorsese at his absolute best, I think.
4: I fucking love Jack Nicholson in this movie. I don't give a fuck if he's Irish or not because the saddest thing about this movie is that him and Scorsese did not work together at all before this. Because he all, all, retires like four years after this. This is sort of his last major role in a big studio movie. And he is very much the movie gangster. He is Paul Mooney and Scarface. I think there's a lot of Howard Hawks... Comparisons to draw from this movie where he is is the guy that is all bluster, all excess, both in his vocabulary and use of the word fuck. If his Joker is the middle-aged gangster, this is the elderly gangster that realizes the walls are coming in largely because of what he's involved with. And I think of his character in Easy Rider as sort of uh, as the beginning. You know, he's not tied to the mob or anything, but he is all about, you know, the American dream. And this is somebody who has taken full advantage of it to the detriment of others. But you automatically realize this movie is a black comedy with his, this perversion of the I believe in America opening of The Godfather. That is oh, what he yeah. really where he's like, I'll do my Nicholson impression later. I could probably do this entire movie verbatim. But you know, this is... He is over the top because they cut to him shooting two people on a beach, and his reaction is, "Jesus, she fell funny." <laughs> yeah, it was black...
2: improvised too, by the
4: yeah. way. And his Ray Winstone, who who's also great in this movie, he just looks at him and goes, "You know, you really should see somebody." He's clearly lost his fucking mind, and I don't, I can't say enough good things about Jack Wilson. He is I... he is one of the greats, and I miss him so much. I say that like he's dead. Which is amazing because he probably should have died about thirty years ago, based on his track <laughs> record and the fact that all of his he has outlived all of his buddies. He's outlived Dennis Hopper. He's outlived Peter Fonda. Like he's the only one left of that ilk.
2: Yeah, that's true. God, that's crazy. I am in total agreement with you on this one. I think he's just amazing in this movie. I mean, I, Nicholson is just—he's one of my guys. I think that he is one of the. Just seminal artist of film acting because what he does is so unique in the way that he's so able to be himself and bring a certain movie star charisma to every single part that he plays while also adapting it to the films. And that's one of the things that I think is sometimes controversial. I think some people criticize Nicholson in this film. They criticize him in Batman. They criticize him in The Shining. They think he's too... Oh, it's just Jack being Jack. And I'm like, my response to that is always like, that's like complaining that an amazing guitar player is is just being himself because he's playing guitar amazingly. Why didn't he play the piano? Because he's great at playing the fucking guitar. That's Nicholson. The way that this film operates is that he has to be such a powerful, huge presence that everything revolves around. What I was watching in the prologue this time was how he's shot in the shadows And there's a few things that that's accomplishing. One of them is just that it hides that he's not 20 years younger because this is a flashback. And part of it is that he is in the shadows, like he is a shadowy kind of, you know, demonic presence. But then part of it, I I was watching this time, I was like, he's like a black hole. He sucks all the gravity into him. Everything is just, he is the center of gravity here. And that's one of the biggest changes actually with Infernal Affairs is that the mob boss character in that film is, is well played by this actor. But the guy does not have nearly as much focus as a character as the, char- as the Frank Costello character does here. And he's also just not as charismatic of a performer. And he's not as old as Nicholson. So he doesn't have the same...
4: There's sick- no paternal relation
2: Yeah, exactly. And that's so important here in, in this movie, theme. the whole theme of fatherhood and fathers and sons of sick genealogy. And Nicholson just... Uh, I, I just love him. I miss him, too. I miss him, too.
4: There's also no, he's not revealed to be an informant in Infernal Affairs. Correct, yeah. That is entirely a machination of Whitey Balger. Yep. So we see Frank Costello, and he
2: recruits this young boy, Colin Sullivan, who will grow up to be played by Matt Damon. Starts sort of grooming him for a role in his gang and tell him about how copper criminal when you're facing a loaded gun, what's the difference? And we jump forward to his adulthood, Matt Damon is now playing the character, and he's at the police academy for the Massachusetts State Police, not at the same time as Leonardo DiCaprio. This is something I think some people get kind of tripped up on, because yeah. uh, it's something that they're not there at the same time, but they don't know each other, which is a change from Infernal Affairs, because Infernal Affairs, they're like old friends. And here they're at there at two different times, which just actually plays into the plot, because... Damon's already a detective when DiCaprio is just getting out of the academy first. is still in the academy because he
4: doesn't ever graduate. Yeah, and there's, they report to different superiors. Sullivan works entirely for Alec Baldwin. And, yeah, the, the cut's a little weird because it makes you think that this they're happening congruently. That's a minor nitpick, but I it love is, it is, yes. that Sullivan is effectively brainwashed by Costello through institution. You know, he uses the Catholicism component. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, the church always wants you to do this, do that. Why don't you, you know, I sort of run a similar operation. I also love how that kid grows up to have no more freckles.
2: <laughs> I had more freckles than I do now. I don't know how that happened, but I when I was a kid, I was like, covered in freckles, and I don't I have far fewer of them now.
3: Like I said, I, I really do like the scenes with Nicholson and this kid, and the cuts that Scorsese makes here, as we see Damon go through the academy and everything. I mean, it's it's a really good way to get us involved in these characters. And Scorsese, I want to go ahead and say again, I think he's at his best. I think he uses the camera very well in this. There's a lot of swooping shots in this. There's a lot of close-ups when you think it's going to be a far away shot. It's all very, very well done here, as opposed to last week when I was just criticizing every single little shot that he does. Here, he's really at his best. It's like two different fucking Scorseses, and this is the one I really like.
4: Scorsese's talked
2: in interviews about how it was like a nightmare to make this movie. Yeah. Not so much the filming as the post-production, which he, post-production always takes a long time on Scorsese films. He clearly really obsesses over the editing of it. And it seemed like people were, from what I understand, people, before this film had come out, people at Warner Brothers were like, this thing is a fucking mess. It's never going to be able to cut together. He shot so much. Audiences are going to hate it. And Scorsese also apparently told some of the other people who worked on, He was like, listen, guys, when this movie comes out, here's the thing. Aviator, Gangs in New York, we had to spend months doing Oscar campaigning and everything like that. We're not going to have to worry about it this time. Don't worry, guys. Not in the sense that he thought it was bad, but he was just like, it's too violent. They say fuck too many times. There's too much just, like, vile, just vulgarity in it. Like, this is not an Oscar-type movie, so don't worry. We don't have to be on the campaign trail for this one. And then, lo and behold. Uh-huh. Last time we talked, I talked about cinematographer Robert Richardson. I thought that The Aviator was one of his great accomplishments, Garrett. you disagreed, But this movie, I think, is Thelma's Schoonmaker. This is a real take-a-bow movie, I think, for her. I think this movie uh-huh. is so impressively edited in the way that it manages to with this very not very long but this you know rather long runtime and all of this plot and all these characters juggle them all together in a way that is so feels so adrenaline like it's got a rush of adrenaline in it and yet still conveying all this information to you and and not just kind of giving you a headache i think this is a this is a real accomplishment
3: that's put perfectly i completely agree with you the editing on this is also very good
2: And in this opening, we see both Colin Sullivan, Matt Damon, and then Billy Costigan, who is Leonardo DiCaprio. We see them at the Academy, and then Sullivan gets his assignment to work in organized crime under Alec Baldwin's character. And DiCaprio gets his off-the-books assignment when he's brought in to meet Martin Sheen as Captain Queenan and Mark Wahlberg as Sergeant Dignam. Grill him on his background. It turns out that he comes from sort of complicated background. His father was working class guy and grew up in the slums in South Boston. And a lot of his family members were gang affiliated, including his uncle who got killed and has a lot of run ins in the law on that side of his family. But his mother was from a lace curtain Irish upper class family. And he split the time between the two families. He went to a very elite prep school, but got kicked out for was hitting his gym teacher with a folding chair
3: and you know what and if, he, if you're quoting this movie chances are it's from one of two people That's either from Jack Nicholson it's from Mark Wahlberg Mark Wahlberg's the one who gets all the zingers in this he's the one who gets the spotlight kind of put on him in this in his very few scenes much fewer scenes than I remembered actually I, I thought he actually yeah. had more but you know what he is pretty funny on here I mean he's he's just uncompromising right Scorsese just told him just don't hide any of your accent. just go all out and he does I mean that accent is just all out and I do like Mark Wahlberg he does have a lot of the great lines in this we talked about him last year with a happening he's a little better here than i would say he was in the happening i would say
2: oh you think uh yeah no he's (laughs) really good here we've been we were hard on him in the past and this is just him in the pocket you know what i mean He's one of those guys you yeah. really have to use him in the right role and this is the right kind of role for him Absolutely. Playing somebody, he doesn't have to convince you that he's not a guy from the streets of Boston because he playing a guy from the streets of Boston and exactly. it's like he fits the dialogue so well like he really gets the rhythms of it and he, you're right he's not in very many scenes and yet he has a big you just remi- every single moment that he's on screen is very memorable you know every line is so quotable and this he's a character who is not in infernal affairs at all. And Ah. yeah, and my whole take on this character is that every single person in this movie is, except him, every single person in this movie is lying in some way about who they are Mm -hmm. to either themselves or to everybody else. And I'm not just talking about the whole undercover thing, because that's part of it. But also the DiCaprio character, he comes from this upper class half of his family, but he wants to seem like he's a more working class kind of tough character. And that's kind of a lie. The Damon character, there's the whole thing about his sexuality, which it very subtly kind of done. And that's part of who he's lying to himself. And Nicholson, he's got the whole thing where he's the top mob boss, but he's also an FBI informant the entire time. And the one person in the movie who is completely not given any bullshit whatsoever is Mark Wahlberg, Sergeant Dignum. He is exactly who he says he is. Yeah. And as he puts it, one point, They traffic in deception, but not in self-deception. And that's why he's the one guy to sort of survive at the end and to come out triumphant, I think. I think that's the kind of the whole ending of the movie is that he's the one guy who figures everything out because he's the one guy who's not so fixated on trying to keep up his own front.
4: This is the perfect example of just the right actor with the right project where he doesn't have to create a character because this is so largely based on the cops he knew when he had his run-ins as a teenager. So he, he had real-life inspiration to pull from. Yeah, he gets most of the best lines, although I think Alex Baldwin gets some great ones.
1: Yeah.
4: Of course, Nicholson, but he he's used enough to where every time he comes back, you're like, okay, he's the jolt to, to propel this. And he's also, you know, he can sniff out the bullshit, who, who's really the only person who can do that, for the most part, which plays into the ending. The Leo thing's very interesting because his character also does not want to be the hero. Ultimately, that's why he ends up being. So I, I like that approach. There's a lot of conventions that Scorsese is able to work around. The Wahlberg thing is interesting because apparently he was not the first choice for this role. Apparently they talked to Brad Pitt about playing this part because it's considerably smaller. And then they went to Dennis Leary.
2: Yeah. Which makes sense in a way, but yeah. Yeah. In terms of Boston Irish guys, like, yeah, Dennis Leary, Wahlberg, yeah. And this is actually a movie where if I could, I did a lot of research on this, because this is a, one of those movies where you hear that a million people were supposed to be in it or whatever. Like, for, this is one of those movies where you hear a lot of, well, such and such person was in it and stuff. And so I did a lot of research on the different people who were up for various parts. Martin Sheen, it was the fifth person who ended up. Playing that character because it was going to be not to get just too off topic, but they had like one a- actor, this Irish actor, Jared McSorley, was cast and started filming and then they let him go. And they had another actor cast, Peter Mullen, who I think is a Scottish actor. He was also cast at one point. I think there was some talk about having DeViro do it. He was busy directing his own movie, so he couldn't do it. It ended up being with Martin Sheen. and But that, that's just and like Mel Gibson talked about how he was offered a part in it. I would guess probably the Baldwin part. We talk already about Brad Pitt and everything. And so this is a movie where I think that they were maybe in a bit of a a crunch in terms of the time. I don't know maybe if that was something that played into it or not. But when you end up with Martin Sheen as, like, your fifth choice, then that's – you're in
4: pretty good territory there. Well, Mel Gibson wanted to do this, but he read the part about a tape recorder,
3: and he's like, oh, I'm good. Oh, jeez.
2: Um, Okay, so where were we? Yeah, right. So Wahlberg and Sheen, they tell DiCaprio that he is not going to be a state policeman, but that they have a different assignment for him. They think he has the right background and the right temperament to go undercover and infiltrate the Frank Costello organization. He'll be kicked out of the academy and then be convicted of a crime, assault and battery, and do enough time in prison that, no one could think that he was that it was just fake that he really was convicted and that with his family connections and his background and everything he'll be able to worm his way into the Costello organization and we get drop Kit Murphy's coming in here <laughs>
3: yeah title screen what ten minutes in eighteen almost. minutes in, eighteen minutes I wow
2: it to see. yeah. Every time
3: I see that
1: it gets me pumped when I when that music kicks in and then it just oh, like, yeah. departed. You're like, It's 18 minutes,
3: yes. It's, yeah, it's, I okay. I use it as the intro for this podcast. You have to because it, it's just it's, it's so just involving and it it does pump you up immediately. And it had that effect in the nineties too, or whenever this was really popular. I remember going to bars and hearing it all the time. Nah, nah. Try living in Boston. <laughs>
2: I imagine that that just plays when people just, if you leave oh, your uh, house in the morning, you, it plays. If you go to
4: any sporting event, you will hear it at least three times. Oh, I'm sure. Which, which is considerably fewer than when this movie was out. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, yeah. So DiCaprio, he oh, uh, he gets out of prison and starts to find his way into the organization. But meanwhile, Matt Damon, as he's making his way up into, the, into police, we start to see his own personal aspirations as he gets an apartment overlooking Beacon Hill and the Massachusetts State House with its very beautiful golden dome
1: uh-huh this will
2: play in later and we we get a sense of his also his particular psychology and his sort of desire to be a social climber. He's going to law school classes at night and he's got this desire to overlook the state capitol and, and be someone even though as one of his academy cadets, fellow cadets, reminds him your father was janitor, son's only a cop forget about it.
3: It's funny we we're talking about Damon and the second part of this retrospective we haven't really mentioned too many times in the course of this podcast Mr. Lino DiCaprio playing this double agent or whatever you want to call him. I have to ask how do you guys feel DiCaprio does in this? I, I have to say that as a quote-unquote tough guy, I don't think he lives up to that. I, I don't think he was the perfect choice for this role. He just doesn't carry the weight of somebody like Matt Damon. He doesn't seem as damaged as this character should be.
2: Well, I disagree definitely about the part that he doesn't seem as damaged as the character is. I think that he's so good in this movie as playing this character as like a, just a walking anxiety attack. That's another big difference between his character here and the comparable character in Infernal Affairs is that the guy in Infernal Affairs is way less. I mean, he's, of course, troubled because of his situation, but he's way less just jittery and, and anxious and stuff. And like
1: the, but he played that last week.
2: Yeah. But <laughs> the difference here and this is what ties to what you were saying about him not being believable as a tough guy. This character is not a tough guy. This character okay. is a overeducated rich kid who is not naturally a tough guy at all. He's got a huge chip on his shoulder, and he's got anger issues, and that's what reflects in who he is. And I think that the great, like one of the scenes that really shows that is when he's at the diner or luncheonette or whatever it is. That's the same one. It took me a couple times from seeing this movie to pick up that the one that's operated by the, the Middle Eastern gentlemen, where the the two gangsters are trying to shake them down, is the same one that Nicholson is shaking down at the beginning of the movie, which I didn't. But it's a nice kind of comment on sort of maybe the changing demographics of the neighborhood and stuff. The scene where he attacks the two gangsters there is so, I think, indicative of the character because they don't see him as a threat at all, which is why he's able to shock them when he goes up and and kicks the shit out of them. And that's the only reason why he's able to get the upper hand is he just totally has the element of surprise. There's no reason for him to attack them other than that he has this huge chip on his shoulder. And when he punches the guy in the face, I love this touch, he punches the guy in the face and he hurts his own hand and screams out in pain. I think that's such a great encapsulation of who that character is, is that he has this idea that he is, he wants to be this tough guy at the beginning of the movie and he does not have what it takes at all. And by the end of the movie, he wants out completely and uh, unfortunately for himself can't get out.
4: You'll also notice in that scene in the bar, he waits for the guy to turn his head before he hits him with his drink. Yeah,
3: exactly. So so this character... See, I hate that scene, though. I hate that scene when he takes that glass and he puts it on, because I'm like, dude, this isn't you. That's I'm not buying it.
4: That's the point. This is a character whose entire life has been a lie
3: and going back and forth between...
4: He's always been, in some way, two different people, because they talk about his both sides of his family. So that's instinctively part of his DNA, and he is ultimately an over-educated underachiever. So I think that... What Mike's talking about, where he, he has to portray that and just ultimately can't, is why Leo, I think, is so good in this movie. Especially the other part that is not really explored in Infernal Affairs is the therapeutic side,
3: right. where he
4: just, he just cannot mentally cope. That is an invention entirely for this movie and is sort of new to this genre, where you never see the the cops going to therapists or anything like that. So it, I, I think Leo's great. I think he, he's very believable in this. And I sort of feel the same way about Matt Damon, who I'm normally not the biggest fan of. And I think that's because my favorite roles of his are when he plays slimy dicks. He's really good at that, yeah. I think of, yes, this. I think of talented Mr. Ripley. Those are my favorite kind of roles of him.
2: Yeah. I actually think it's a good that you bring up the therapy because that's actually a telling kind of difference is that The character does go to therapy in Infernal Affairs, but the difference is that when he goes to therapy, like the scene where he goes to therapy in In Infernal Affairs is it cuts to him. He's literally sleeping on the therapist's couch, and she is on her computer playing games. And he wakes up and is like, oh, is the hour up? Okay, don't worry. Uh, You can get – I'm going to head on out. Be thankful that I've been here the six months just taking naps while you're doing this. I've only been doing this because I have to see a –
4: yeah, there's therapist. no there's no mental exploration of his psyche. It's strictly a mandate that he has to follow, and the therapist knows that as well, so she doesn't even try. And
2: then that's what makes her attracted to him is that he is so she's as she says, your vulnerability is freaking me out right now. He's so vulnerable to her when Damon is not vulnerable. He refuses to show any vulnerability at all, even though he's her boyfriend. He refuses to confide anything seriously to her. I, that's, that's kind cool. of the ultimate kind
3: of take on those characters. Yeah, yeah, the worst therapist ever I mean can can we at least agree on that this chick she's got the worst practice like DiCaprio Primo comes in I need drugs and she just writes him a prescription for drugs and she's sleeping with one of the clients I mean my god this was made today she would there would be outcries for her to be fired
2: yeah well yeah this is the character who is a combination of two different characters because in yeah yeah Yeah. because in Infernal Affairs the person who is the Matt Damon character is she a wife she's his fiance. He has a fiancé, but she doesn't have anything to do with the psychiatry of it. That's a different character. It's an interesting choice to combine those two characters. You can make an argument that it is combining the two female characters of the story into one means that there's even fewer female characters, and it, like, kind of reduces that. I can see that argument being made, but I also think that the two comparable characters in Infernal Affairs are not that well-developed anyways. And creating a character who has this kind of conflicted dual loyalty fits the themes and the, and the storyline of the movie, so I don't have a problem with that. It's interesting that Vera Farmiga is, like, the one person in this movie who was not famous at the time. Do you know what I mean? But this cast is crazy. I mean, it's like Di- DiCaprio, Damon, Nicholson, Wahlberg, Sheen, Baldwin. And then Vera Farmiga, who I certainly have never heard of in 2006, I'm sure she had done stuff beforehand, but she was close to a nobody. And that's interesting. I, I wonder why. you know what I mean, was Kate Winslet somebody that they were looking at? Was, I'm sure like who were other comparable kind of people of that era were, but I keep saying comparable. Today. Sorry. It's interesting. I don't know what, w- whether that was intentional or not to go after somebody who wasn't as famous or not, but. Did you guys know Vera Formiga was before
3: 2006? I, I myself, know This was before up in the air. Yeah, this was oh, yeah. before up in the yeah. air. I had no idea about her. I think she's fine in this. I just hate the way she's written. I can't <laughs> stand this character. She's the worst.
1: Is,
2: it, is <laughs> it the ethics of it or is it like... Yeah,
3: absolutely. It, it's a it's a lot of the ethics of it. And even the therapist that she studied, I, I read this, said even after she saw the movie was like, yeah, that wasn't a bad portrayal. That was just a bad therapist. Yeah. <laughs> she was just badly written. I, I think Farmiga's <laughs> fine. I, th- I think her chemistry was with both actors is actually pretty good. I just don't like her motivations. I, I don't know anything that this girl is doing. It's another one of these female characters that's just not written well.
2: I don't think it's one of the stronger aspects of the film. I would agree
3: with that. It ties into some
2: other things that I think are interesting, particularly with the Damon character. But I don't, yeah, I don't think as a love story, not that it's a love story really, it has a great kind of impact. And this is uh, around the point where we find that the actual plot plot of the movie, or as close to it is, is that there's been some Stolen microprocessors that, <laughs> which having them say having Mark Wahlberg and then Martin Sheen in his JFK voice say microprocessors as many times as possible is so funny to me. I don't know if they intentionally chose something because it's just drugs in the original film. If they intentionally chose something to have it be kind of. I don't know. It's thought that they just thought it was funny to say, but it, it, there is something that's kind of, they're after this thing that sounds so technical. And these are like the least technical guys. Like they're just such sh- schmoes in a way. Nicholson just hanging around in his bar and it, wearing his bathrobe. And <laughs> he has some choice clothing in this movie. Some interesting costuming choices in this movie with his suits and his various things. The microprocessors are stolen. And they're thinking that they're going to sell them to Chinese organized crime, which was uh, intended to be a cameo for the stars of the original film, but that ended up not taking place. And David is on the track to investigate it, but of course he's working for Costello the whole time. And at the same time, Sullivan, DiCaprio, he's getting his way into the organization when he starts getting in on coke dealing with his uh, deadbeat cousin, played by Kevin Corrigan, yeah. right? Always a welcome presence, I think, in in a movie like this. And Kevin Corrigan had, of course, that tiny part in Goodfellas where he keeps stirring the sauce. He's Henry Hill's brother in the wheelchair. And now he's back. Played a total scumbag. It's really nice. And
3: he's the one guy that, because he's not a big-name star in this, that you kind of forget about. So when he does emerge towards the end of the film, it's a bit of a shock.
2: Yeah, he's got the most Irish name possible, because his name is (laughs) Kevin Fitzgerald Corrigan. Find the most Irish person they can. Although he's half Puerto Rican, which is why I think he has... Yeah, he's half Puerto Rican, which is why I think they give him that line in the movie where he says something racist about Puerto Ricans. I think that was an intentional kind of thing. I feel like there was a lot of rewriting certain lines for character. Think. I mean, Monaghan talks about how once Nicholson was cast, he wrote more stuff for that character because it's Jack Nicholson. You can't not, you know what I mean? When you yeah. put Jack Nicholson in a movie, you give him room to do Jack Nicholson's thing. I get lost at certain points in this plot for me because this is this is one where the plot is very complicated. I think it's clear when you're watching the movie, but it's complicated in following two different characters doing two different things at once. So. So I guess relating to the, what we were talking about with the romance, this is where we do start to get to see Kosh again start seeing, uh, Madeline, the therapist, at the same time that Damon is dating her. And this is where I think that, There's a lot that DiCaprio has to work with. Like I said, I think he's really good in this movie. There's a whole story about why he didn't get an Oscar nomination for this movie, and yet he did get one for Blood Diamond, a movie no one ever has thought of in the past 15 years. And apparently had to do with, there was some debate about how they were going to categorize him and Damon, whether they were lead or supporting, and they thought DiCaprio was a good bet to be nominated, but that they didn't think he had a good bet in lead, so they submitted him and supporting actor, and they wanted to campaign him for supporting actor, but he didn't want to take attention away from Wahlberg and Nicholson, who were both sort of in the conversation at that time. And I, that's something I didn't realize until I was reading up on this. Nicholson won a bunch of, or was nominated for several awards. For this movie, and so, so he was nominated for more than Wahlberg was, and then Wahlberg ended up getting the Oscar nomination, which I think is interesting. I wonder how that tied into it. because, of course, Nicholson Academy favorites, and it's not like Wahlberg is the warmest, most lovable guy on the planet. So uh, I don't think yeah. that's I don't think he put on a charm offensive, but I think people just like the character so much, and it is a true supporting performance in the sense that it's like a guy who shows up for a few scenes and doesn't exactly steal the entire movie, but just kind of adds so much to the movie.
4: This was the year I lost faith in the Oscars because Alan Arkin won supporting actor for just being Alan Arkin.
2: Yeah, I'm not a fan of that movie. That little Fucking movie.
4: Eddie, Mur- Eddie Murphy didn't win, and it was like a collective gasp because he won everything else.
2: Yeah, that's the case. I mean, the whole story there is far... Is- as far as I'm aware, is that people didn't want to give Eddie Murphy an Oscar because Eddie Murphy is like... Is Eddie Murphy. Yeah, yeah. He's a D. People don't really like working with him. So it's, yeah. Eddie Murphy could be the name of a character in The Departed. Eddie Murphy? Uh, tell me that
1: wouldn't be the sixth <laughs> member of the gang.
2: So there's some business involving DiCaprio getting into various violent scrapes that we've talked about before. There's the part where he... Beats the guy in the bar for making a crack about he,
1: Yeah,
2: right, cuz he's drinking cranberry juice and that that is where uh, he gets spotted by Ray Winstone's character named Mr. French uh, <laughs> and who kind of spots him and, and sort of brings him to Nicholson's attention and one thing that Nicholson does in this movie a lot that I think is is kind of a nice character bit is he keeps telling DiCaprio and this goes back to what I was T- talking about really about DiCaprio not being not, his character is not actually a tough guy. And that's kind of what Nicholson keeps trying to tell him. Cause he's like, tells him you should go back to school. <laughs> he's like, you you really, have you considered going back to school? And, and Tostigan, who's partly bullshitting because he's doing the whole undercover thing. So like, why would I want to do that? And he's like, he's this fucking idiot. So that's part of what it is is that, and I think really the Nicholson character kind of
4: knows Deep down. Deep
2: down, that he is the rat. Yeah. Uh, I mean, telling
4: him, there's also the thing he keeps telling him to eat something. Yeah, and it's, it's and it gets it, hysterical the last time he tells him because <laughs> Nicholson's theatrics when he can't see him. I also love how his name is Mister French and Ray Winstone is the most British guy.
2: Yeah, playing like, an Irish American named like, Mister French. I, Ray Winstone probably the dodgiest of the accents here. Not not to be not to harp on him too much. I mean, I think that complaining about accents can be can kind of get sort of circular a little bit. And I'm not from Boston, so I can't say... And I feel like whenever an actor does an accent in a movie, everybody suddenly becomes a dialect coach, and they, like, suddenly <laughs> are an expert on every dialect and accent. But Winstone, probably the dodgiest of the of the Boston accents here. Nicholson, probably the not-doing-an-accent of the accents here. A few key words here and there, like, in the mosh. Yeah, what do you what do, what do you guys think about that? I mean, that's one of the things that people got to talk about this movie, right? I mean, the Boston accents... Yeah, it's-
4: I think it plays into the over the top theatricality of this movie. Because it's such a black comedy, I think it only makes sense that the accents from the non Bostonian actors are that much more extravagant. And the people who are from Boston even up their own game. Yes. With, yeah. You know. Matt Damon really leans into it. I don't view, and I'm notorious, you know, there's certain movies with accents where I just can't.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, me and Matt really rip on accents in a, on this show. Uh, it depends on <laughs> the material, ultimately. Like, if this was uh-huh. played straighter and entirely for dramatic half, I would
4: be more critical. But because this is such a, I can't overemphasize how funny this movie is and intentionally funny like I don't think it was it was something that just happened out of thin air I think it's perpetual in the same way that De Niro's accent in Cape Fear is so fucking ridiculous
1: yeah good Um, call he
4: he could very well Max Cady might as well be in this movie working for the mob it it fits the tone of the movie is, is what I'll say yeah
2: and how everybody in the movie is Irish like, I know there are a lot of Irish people in Boston, but there's not a non-Irish person in the entire police kind of force.
4: population like this movie dictates.
2: Them. Yeah, right, exactly, exactly. It's like everyone in the movie is Irish or Anthony Anderson. <laughs> so those are the two demographics. I, I, I just yeah, think that's you're so... You're the, yeah. the
4: one person who feels very out of place. Oh, really? Uh, you think so? I don't just say that because he's the only black person in this movie. Well, but you think that just because of his comic backgrounds? It's distracting is what I'll say. Huh because he does not... I don't think he has an accent at all. Yeah, I guess that's true. I don't think he gets ones. that many lines, but his introduction is also the... He talks about getting a blowjob. He is entirely there for, for Yuck.
2: Well, I also think that he is there to... Again, Infernal Affairs, there's not... This character doesn't really exist in Infernal Affairs, so it actually plays out kind of interestingly in the... Not to jump ahead, but, like... I guess this is be the place to discuss it, but, like, in the end of Infernal Affairs, the DiCaprio undercover cop character and the damon corrupt cop character they meet on the building and the undercover cop takes the other guy into custody but then another cop shows up and he's like drop your weapon you know put your hands down he's like trying to explain him, i'm undercover I'm undercover and then that guy who comes across the two of them the guy who's in the place of anthony anderson he kills the undercover cop and then in this movie they make that into two B, which is a great little misdirect. If you, I mean, if you've seen the original Infernal Affairs before seeing this one, it's a good little misdirect because you would think that Anthony Anderson is corrupt if you are j- are just familiar with Infernal Affairs when you get to that point. But they make it a two, a, 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 a sort of a double reversal at the end. I just think that was kind of a fun choice, and I, I think that he's there to be kind of an outsider because of his race. And by casting an actor, I don't know if he was intentionally cast because people know about his comic you know, his more comedic background, but he stands out, I think, in a way that makes the audience remember him for when he shows up at the end in in more of a way. Because when James Badge Dale shows up at the end of the movie you are a little bit like, oh, right, yeah, there was, like, a, another another white guy in this movie. That's right. Like, you know, so I think that there's there's a, a, an additional bit of, of characterization in, in that way. Also in this movie, Robert Wahlberg, also, I just thought that that was interesting, uh, the, the most forgotten of the Wahlberg brothers, the one who is not Mark Donnie or the guy who is Wahlbergers. He plays the FBI agent in this movie. I just think that's interesting. And
4: that's why Wahlberg gets to just, like... <laughs> like well, he's only, apparently Robert Wahlberg only makes movies where he plays in Boston. Mystic River, The Departed, Gone Baby Gone, The Equalizer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he, does not, he does not leave Boston.
1: Yeah,
2: he's not going to Texas to do uh, Transformers 4 or whatever.
1: Yeah.
4: Yeah.
2: And he got off on several tangents there. So Costigan is introduced to Costello, who sort of takes a liking to him and starts to Break it. Well, takes a liking to him and breaks his hand. That's
4: just how it goes. Yeah, Uh, re-breaks his hand because it's already it's already in a cast, and (laughs) you you can clearly see that he's not the boot is not making contact. But that also cracks me up. Like as soon as Nicholson as soon as Costello does that, he breaks his arm. He goes in the bar and he goes, "Who let this IRA motherfucker and my ba? Like he just he's so stream of conscience. Yeah, it adds to the character's unpredictability because you never know what he's gonna do or what he's gonna say.
2: And it leads to maybe my favorite line in the movie, or my favorite dialogue exchange in the movie, which is really saying something, which is where he asks the the Irish guy at the bar, he goes, how's your mother? Uh, She's on her way out. We all uh, act accordingly. I just think that's so, I just think about that a lot, just
4: because it's fucking true.
2: (laughs) So yeah, so Costello realizes that there is wrath.
4: Because after this, he goes to see Costello and he's eating lobster. And he's like, you know, maybe we could work something out. After he talks to him about John Lennon, where he says, I'm an artist. Give me a fucking Uber, I'll get you something out. He's clearly just making shit up. And every yes. time they cut to Ray Stone, he's just sitting there doing nothing. But they have that conversation where it's like, should we trust him? And he talks about his uncle. So it's clear, I think, in that scene, you can heavily infer. Eh-huh. Part of the pun that Costello knows there's got to be a reason why Acosta, again, of all people, sought him out.
2: There's also an interesting, I think there's two interesting things that are going on with Nixon's character that I don't think you realize the first time you watch the movie, which is one of which is that you don't know until the end of the movie, really, that he is an FBI informant. And so he is more in control of the situation than everybody realizes because at any time he wants, he can make calls to the FBI and give somebody up when he wants to. And that gives him a layer of protection, which is true of Whitey Bulger. And that's why Whitey Bulger was able to stay on top for 25 years or whatever in Boston was that he was an FBI informant and they were protecting him the whole time because he could give them the mafia mafia. And who cares if he's going around killing people? So that's, that's an element that they've added to this this movie that is drawn from real life and adds a whole additional layer to that character. And then the other thing is that I think that the character is kind of unhinged from before the, you know, plot even starts but I do think that he's kind of sort of losing it a little bit even though he has all of the financial control and 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 you know power he's sort of losing his mental stability I think a little bit and DiCaprio sort of talks about that hints at that a couple moments 70 years old and he talks about he showed up he had blood all over his hands like he's really kind of getting sloppy and I think that that's why he's not really being caught is that I mean the guy who would be able to, to smoke him out Basically knows it, but he, I think, both has a false sense of security because of the whole FBI connection. And he's also, he's just kind of mentally is kind of losing it. And so his whole sense of perspective is kind of skewed.
1: Yeah.
4: And there's also the theory that he's also a closet homosexual.
2: Yeah. Well, this is maybe to get into that both with him and with Damon, because that's been my reading of the Damon character for the past couple times i've seen the movie and i don't know if i'm totally sold on that how it relates to nicholson but there's a lot of sexual stuff going on with nicholson i mean him putting on the strap on in the porno theater
4: i mean for one thing which is a nicholson yeah which was his idea
3: that was an improv
4: (laughs) but also it's clear in that scene that sullivan is not into the movie whatsoever
1: yeah yeah there's also that's true
4: there's that part with the priest's at the restaurant where he gives him shit, the read on it is that he was molested by a priest, and that's why he hates the church so much.
2: Yeah, I, that makes sense.
4: That makes yeah, sense too. you. know, let's not forget this takes place in Boston. Sure. So that's that, scene also, the, yeah. that scene also takes place right before Costello is shot and killed. And obviously, you know, he's wearing this leopard-skinned fucking bathrobe. to <laughs> oh uh, the, the the costuming in this movie is just great
2: and then with damon it's i was watching this time and i was thinking about how literally his first line of dialogue in the movie is just him just yelling hom- homophobic slurs at somebody else. i i that really i'm pretty confident that that's my kind of read on that character is that he really is deeply deeply closeted to the point where he might not himself even be aware of it and that leads to all kinds of problems with how he is relating to his girlfriend and he's doing this performance of masculinity at all times and that is what it's sort of what undoes him and i mean it just kind of relates to what i was talking about it about how sort of this is really a movie where every single person in the movie is lying to either themselves or somebody else except walbert and that that's kind of what gets them into hot water So Damon asked Costello if he can get information to cross-reference the members of his gang with what they have in the Massachusetts State Police Database. And there's a lot of back and forth about how the undercover unit, which is Sheen and Wahlberg, they won't give the names up of their guys to Damon and Baldwin at the organized crime unit. And so there's this kind of firewall between them where that's, which is of course crucial in, in maintaining the plot of the movie because neither person can see the other person. And this is also around the time that DiCaprio first hears a hint that Costello is an FBI informant. He finds that out from a guy who he's, he's shaken down for Costello and he, He shoots him and the guy's like, I thought I was supposed to go into shock. So I always think it's hilarious. And that thread, interestingly, I mean, this is something that you don't know for sure until closer to the end of the movie. But that thread kind of gets distracted from you because it's after this that he does the whole thing where he's like accusing him of being a rat. And it throws him off the trail, but it also throws the, at least I think, from my perspective, it throws the audience off the trail too. But now both of them know that they're trying to find the other person. There's there's a rat in both sides, and they've got to figure out what's going on, and DiCaprio's kind of having a full-on just fucking break down and sort of go into Sheen and and Wahlberg. He really kind of knows that he wants out, even though he's only in the right in the middle of his assignment. And this is around the time that, is this when he writes on the envelope?
1: Yeah, he writes
4: citizens.
2: Yeah, because this is when, in order to smoke out the mole in the operation, Costello makes all of his guys and his gang write down all of their personal information, their names, their financial information, social security number, everything that, would give away who they are to the state police, but DiCaprio knows is, would would set him up. So he gets out of the situation, but not before correcting a guy's spelling on the envelope, uh, the crucial citizen's uh, spelling, which I think it's an interesting word that they chose. I wonder how that ties in maybe into some of the talk about the Patriot Act kind of stuff. And then after this is the scene in the theater, right?
4: No, we have the scene where they meet with the Chinese.
2: Oh, right. Yes, of course. Sorry, a little, a
4: little other place. this is where you really start to see the machinations of these two guys going back and forth. Costello gets the text about no phones, so he tells everybody he shut him off. Had the scene where, as a diehard New York sports fan, Jack Nicholson openly refused to wear a Boston Red Sox hat, which is why Costello is wearing Yankees gear as the, yeah. the premier... That goes to show people think that Yankees-Red Sox thing is a joke. It's really not. It is the bloods of the Crips of the sporting world. Where's he from? He's from Jersey. I think he's okay. from New- I guess that makes sense.
3: He's just also, instead of liking the Celtics, he's also just a big Laker fan. he Um,
4: likes all the big media markets.
3: Yeah. Like,
4: he'll see him side at Laker games.
3: Which is another thing you you indulge with Nicholson, right? I mean, this is something that in order to fit the character, you would think it would have to be a Boston hat, but nope, Nicholson has to wear that Yankee hat, even if it means playing a character. The
2: ultimate disguise. (laughs) Yeah. That reminds me though, did you know that Whitey Bulger, who was still at large when this movie came out, there were like reports that he had seen the Whitey Bulger spotted in a theater playing The Departed no shit yeah yeah I don't know if that ended up being true but like the FBI were looking in on reports that that had happened I do wonder what he thought about it if he did see it yeah you have the scene in the warehouse a very tense scene I think Baldwin is hilarious in this scene giving up smoking and (laughs) you're like he's like he's so he's like a walking heart attack I called DiCaprio a walking anxiety attacker in the movie Baldwin is such a he's so sweaty in this whole
1: movie yeah
4: they're like this is the one time where he loses his shit where he's like somebody tell me those cars are empty
3: (laughs) This is another one, though. This one last week. He was one of the only compliments I gave that movie last week. In a cast full of great actors, I think he fits in pretty well.
4: You got the Patriot act line and Mark Wahlberg saying, I'm the guy who does this job. You must be the other guy. An- another great line. I was, that's exactly
2: what I was about to mention. That's another one of the best lines in the movie. Another great exchange is the one between Wahlberg and Baldwin, where he goes, fuck yourself. retire <laughs> from fucking your wife. How's your mother? Good. She's tired from fucking my father. It's the Wahlberg character being one step ahead of the other guy, which is so funny because Wahlberg usually plays total idiots. Well, he's usually good when he plays idiots. But here he's actually arguably the smartest person in the whole movie. So yeah, because he I figures know. out
4: they're at that exchange. He's like, well, why the fuck did they turn all their phones off?
2: Yeah, exactly. And the FBI guy who he gets mad at, that's his brother. That's why I brought it up earlier. I think that's funny. So after that, he's just starting to get tense. Then this is about where the movie theater scene is. Yes, right? It's
4: a little bit after that, but there's one thing I want to talk about before you get there. It's when Sullivan and Costello are talking to each other and he turns around and Martin Sheen and Mark Wahlberg are actually there.
1: Yeah.
4: This is sort of the tip that Costello's aware. Yeah, I know there's a mole on both sides and all that. And he goes, very foreshadowing line, I got a date with some angels.
2: Oh, yeah. One aspect of this movie, I've seen this movie probably 10 times or whatever. do you think about how Costello's got his girlfriend in the movie who seems to be so disconnected from everything else that's going on. It's like one element of the movie I've never been able to get a hold of in terms of, like, I don't know what to make of that. I definitely don't dislike it, but it's just so funny to me. I feel like a lot of this is improv on Nicholson's part. I mean, I feel like I've said that multiple times, but really, he's just one of those actors who you just, he's like, he's one of the few people that Stanley Kubrick let improv. That's a sign of how much you got to let Jack you got to let the dog off the leash, really, to his credit, I think.
3: Yeah, and we talked about that last year. Nicholson did improvise. I mean, he improvised one of the most famous lines from that movie. Here's Johnny. That was his. You do indulge him. I just don't know how much it fits the character in this movie, is all I'll say.
4: Oh, really? I think it fits because he's supposed to be unpredictable, and he's also supposed to be scary. There's a part where he's not outright costing him, but he's talking to him holding a severed hand. Yes. You know, when he pulls a gun on him later, which I think that was also improvised. So I think his spontaneity adds to the this character. You don't run that risk if you're never scared by him.
2: Yeah, and one thing that I noticed, I actually noticed this watching uh, Gangs in New York, and then it, it sort of follows into this, which is that in his movies about the mafia, the boss character, Scorsese always portrays that character in a certain way. Paul Servino in Goodfellas, Nicholas, Coach from Cheers, Colasanto in Raging Bull, it's Pesci in The Irishman, They're always portrayed as this sort of older, kind of grandfatherly, very sedate, restrained, kind of quiet, behind-the-scenes sort of figure. They don't get their hands dirty. They're very kind of euphemistic. They don't openly threaten people and stuff like that. In this and in Gangs of New York, with the Bill the butcher character, you have totally different takes on a mob boss, where they're this extremely kind of wild, temperamental, unpredictable, kind of over-the-top figure And I think that, yeah, and that ties in. I just think that's interesting. I don't know what, if there's a point, if it's Italian versus Irish, if that's how Scorsese sees those two groups operating, or if it's something totally unrelated, but especially since that's not how the character in Infernal Affairs really act in the same way. I like the shot, it was in an earlier scene, but I like the shot where DiCaprio is in the bar and he hasn't met Costello yet, and he's in the bar, and there's the two women who are talking at the other corner of the bar, and then they go silent because Costello has entered... And then the camera pans over and you see that he's now sitting next to DiCaprio. And it's, it's almost like he's just kind of manifested there. He just kind of appeared there almost like Satan. I mean, he is a satanic kind of figure in this movie in the same way that I think Martin Sheen sort of is not God exactly, but he's the force of good. And to cast Martin Sheen in that character really helps with that because he's so good at playing that kind of fatherly, President Bartlett-type character. And what do you guys think about Martin Sheen in this movie? We've mentioned almost everybody else except him.
3: He's another one of those characters that I don't think he's in it enough to properly judge. I, I think he's fine. Like you said, there were four other choices before we finally landed on Martin Sheen. And him and Mark Wahlberg do have a funny rapport. When they're in the office together. The fact that him and Wahlberg are literally the only two people to know. That Matt Damon's a quote unquote good guy in this movie. It's an interesting foil for me. And, oh, well, Matt, we're going to be talking about Martin Sheen a lot in the next coming years so when we get deep into Stephen King. I don't know. I, I think he's fine in this. I don't think he brings anything that, say, Alec Baldwin doesn't, but he's fine.
2: Yeah. It's not a particularly complicated kind of character. He's pretty. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, then, he and, represents good, in a way. He
3: represents good, and he bounces off other people, kind of like what DiCaprio does in his role. He doesn't really stand out to me, but he he does fine. And again, I love his interactions with Wahlberg a lot. I'm sort <laughs> of the
4: same way with this character. He's there more as a representation of an idea, more than he is a fleshed-out character. And they do a good job. There's that part where he goes to his house that you learn, he's like, yeah, my kid goes to Notre Dame because, of course, the Irish son against gets to Notre Dame. You can tell he's the fifth slot because this character is not It doesn't call for an actor with a certain archetype to play it. I guess that makes sense.
2: This is where we get the scene of Sullivan and Ellerbe at the golf course And uh, Sullivan finds out his new assignment is to specifically to find the rat. And he's going to make himself into a pariah because, of course, it's one thing the cops don't like. It's people looking into what they do. And this is where you get into some complicated stuff with this character because he's, of course, going to be setting himself up for potentially a big career. But at the same time, his whole thing is him trying to get his way into this world. And now he's potentially going to do it and yet completely give up his own social status. And there's a lot of... I really like Matt Damon in this movie. I think he's just really excellent here. Same. Um, Yeah. And this is, I think, a role that he doesn't get a lot of praise for, I think, because it doesn't seem to be, quote, transformative, unquote, in a way that people usually like their performers to be. He doesn't have a weird look. He doesn't have a scar or makeup or anything like that. He doesn't have to lose weight or gain weight. He doesn't even do an accent that's not just an exaggerated version of his own accent. And yet... He is so good. And to really play this guy is just a real fucking heel. And you don't even get it at the beginning of the movie quite how bad he is. He gets worse and worse as the movie goes on. And that's I think that's kind of brave as 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 an A list actor to to play just a true asshole. He's done that a few times. I think to his credit. I think that in the last duel, for instance, from last year, he played a medieval asshole, which is, was which was a bit of a stretch for him. But the rest of it fits sense. Yeah, ye old asshole. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, right. With the hair of a modern speed metal guitarist. And then this is where he has the envelope that the information is in is given to Costello, who goes to meet Damon at the porno theater in, I guess, what is Chinatown? Maybe meant as an allusion to the original film. And Costello's got the strap-on, the famous strap-on, uh, really kind of a crazy, crazy scene. This is an extremely tense scene when it ends up becoming a, a sort of foot chase, between, or not even a chase exactly, because it's not this, movie, but this kind of attempted tailing, the surveillance, when Costigan gets the text to make the arrest and he's shadowing him without trying to give away his own location to Sullivan, and they're, they're going down the alley. This is so tense. I love the moment where DiCaprio has to turn, and then there's these three close-ups in quick succession, each tighter than the last, that play out over a second to really push in the tension on his character. I mean, this is just, we're watching a master filmmaker really just pull out the stops to make a classic thriller scene in the way that the original Cape Fear was an example of that. And Scorsese doing his remake of that was him doing that as well. And this is also, I think, a key turning point for the Damon character because this is where he kills the poor guy coming out of a restaurant. And this is, I think, a turning point for that character because I think this is the moment where we completely lose any possible sympathy for him, I think. Not that he was a fucking hero beforehand, but at the same time, you know, it's a movie that's very much in kind of a gray world where the cops are corrupt, So it's, you know, there's not a lot of good in the world. There's a lot of bad. So the fact that he's a gangster pretending to be a cop is not all that terrible. At this point, he becomes kind of irredeemable, I think, because he's killed an innocent person. Shortly after this, when he's very, very kind of shaken up by what's happened, because Damon is able to get away and and DiCaprio is not able to make the arrest, he's very shaken up and he goes to seek out Madeline, the therapist, who is Damon's girlfriend, and they end up having sex the tune of I Van Morrison cover Comfortably Numb, which is, I would not necessarily think of as making love music, but uh, I don't know, perhaps Corsese has a different opinion on that. It's an interesting thing. This song definitely got a boost from this movie. This particular version of the song, that is, got a boost from this movie coming out. It was famously was featured in that Sopranos episode.
4: Yeah, yes. the one that Roger Waters, I think, is actually featured on it. So it's not like Pink Floyd was 100%. Oh, yeah,
2: yeah. Away from it. Which from when the Berlin Wall came down and they did a concert, which is weird. like it's just a weird combination of things. Roger Waters, Van Morrison, the Berlin Wall, Martin Scorsese, like just like the, all of that together over a sex scene. This is where yeah, they have sex and that's obviously going to play a part later. This is when Queen Captain Queen tells Sullivan that they're going to find the mole and they decide that they're going to set up a meeting where Costigan is going to meet with Queen and... And they find out that Sullivan, that Matt Davin, has been following Queen. so if he tracks Queenan down, they're going to find the mole. And of course, it's going to be fucking lights out for both of them, for DiCaprio and Sheen. So Sheen does a, sort of a diversion where he's going to stay there and distract the gang when they show up. But DiCaprio is able to manage to escape, but not Sheen. And of course, Sheen gets thrown off the building in a very grisly moment, lands right in front of DiCaprio with the I love that moment.
3: Matt and I, we, uh, at the time we record this, we just got through doing a two and a half hour podcast about exploitation film. Matt, didn't this feel like straight out of one of those? Um, like,
4: this is straight out of, this is like the Brian De Palma or Paul Verhoeven blood swibs. It's meant to get you out of your seat because this is really the true escalation point for the movie from here. Yeah, where uh-huh. this, is where yeah this is when it goes bonkers. Everything yeah. goes
3: to shit after this.
2: Yeah, I mean, exploitation film is a good call because it's a real note of very un classy violence within uh not that the movie is like, oh, super class. It's not a Merchant film or whatever, but like in this, you know, in this you know, <laughs> film from a great American filmmaker, you know, that ended up winning best picture. You got this body falling down in front of a, an actor. It's splashing him with blood. And it's the way that there's no music playing and there's no sound until he hits the floor is so well done. Scorsese is so good at using silence when he.
1: Literally.
4: Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> ha, 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 yes. For instance, how in Goodfellas, after the, the build last... build-up for Cheshi, and then he gets shot, there's no music. Yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And similar scene in The Irishman, when
2: De Niro is sent to uh, kill Pacino, there's no music for, like, a 30-minute stretch of the film. It's, like, so quiet, and it's, like, unsettling. And he, he, it's the same thing here, and it's not for an extended period of time, it's five seconds, but just for five seconds. We don't have a Wilhelm scream or anything like that or martin sheen going no but it's just a guy being thrown off a building in complete silence and then dicaprio walking and then pff, things get real tense after this and this is also i think where the x's start to really be noticed which is a reference to the original howard hawk scarface which is one of my all-time favorite films where every time somebody gets killed there's an x on screen uh and
3: scorsese oh, is doing that geez, here too where there a lot of x's go. appear what was the, oh what? god you That's... don't like that no like not that? at all. No, especially one shot at the end of this film. This is when Scorsese turns into the Scorsese oh, that's I different. don't like. The ending is different. I think the X's are subtle. No, the ending's different. But I'm saying, I'm saying the symbolism and stuff that he's doing here, I don't like.
2: Well, but it's not really symbolism so much as it's just because if it was symbolism, then it would mean the X's was sta- the X was standing in for something. It's not really standing in for something if it's just they're present when there's a death. I think it's just kind of a joke. I mean, it's what Matt was saying about this being a black comedy. It's like the way that it sort of tells you what's going to happen before it happens is so kind of, I just think it's funny. I mean, that's what I think about it is that it's not, it's even funnier in the original Scarface, but it's, I think it's just kind of a humorous note here.
4: It's no more, intrusive than the oranges and the godfather which started out as as a pattern like you catch it in the first one it's not a coincidence of the second one and in the third one it's downright laughable where there's a massacre that starts with a giant bowl of oranges in the middle of this fucking table and a helicopter comes in and shoots everybody
3: it's i helicopter. like that i don't like this
4: this is where dignum goes kind of off the
2: handle because queen dead and he knows that he got that the whoever this rat is or whoever this mole Whatever, whoever the insider is, he's been betraying them. Has gotten too fucking close to things, and he he resigns and he leaves, seemingly for the rest of the movie, right up until the end. And that's I the first time I saw this movie, I had forgotten that Mark Wahlberg was in it, right up until. Do you know what I mean? Like he really does disappear, and yeah, he does. Yeah.
3: He, he really does And it's great When he shows back up And he's like Wearing the booties it's And like so the, the shower cap yeah. And it, it's so fucking Out there And interesting When we meet DiCaprio He's shopping And when he meets His demise He is carrying This bag of groceries
1: yeah, One true. of which
4: Has an orange That falls
3: out Yeah a Of course of loaf
1: of french bread. Yeah I Yeah if, exactly Is there
2: like A continuity reason For that or something Every time someone Goes to, to the grocery store in movies They always gotta buy Some loaf of french bread I bought a loaf of french bread Like one time In 29 years <laughs> yeah.
3: Because Because it's Scorsese wrapping the thing up. The only way he knows how.
2: So this is also where they try and throw Costello off the trail by saying that one of his gang members was actually the one who dies. Fitzy, I think is his name? That he was uh, actually an undercover Massachusetts state police he's also the one after he dies he's the one who figures out that or before he dies he's the one who figures out that dicaprio is the mole it's one of the things about i know some people talked talked about how in some movies where there's like an undercover cop how obvious it is that the undercover guy is actually a cop but this is a movie where i don't think that that ends up being a factor because i feel like there's psychological reasons why that why nobody ever confronts that and of course that can just kind of be nitpicking in some way but this is where the what seems like it's going to be the final showdown comes off there's going to be a cocaine drop off but they're going to shut the Sadies and the FBI – or the Stadies are going to shut it down, and we get – I'm shipping up to Boston again, and it really kind of he, – he's setting you up to think that this is sort of the climax of the movie, and it sort of seems like it is. Things are getting tense, and there's this big – Gunfight that erupts in a classic movie setting, a warehouse, and you know the fucking Costello crew are decimated in the most fucking overkill possible way. In the case yeah, of Rainwater
3: Stone, this was something I didn't think I'd ever see Scorsese do. This was Scorsese trying to be like another filmmaker. This was him trying to be like Tarantino. He's trying to out Tarantino, Tarantino in these last few set of uh, scenes, and you know it just it just gets a little too out of control for me. I don't know. I'm not a Big fan of the final 20 or so minutes of this film.
2: To me, the whole point of the movie, in a way, is he talked about it being kind of his War on Terror movie, and it's like, that's kind of what I think this whole movie is about, is this, it's these two sides that are each trying to sort of justify their hunt for the other side, and they're spending so much time and money and bullets, and people are dying left and right to try and get somebody, and then they get him and it's like, well, okay, what have we accomplished here? We fucking blew up Iraq to get, you know, that's, I'm not trying to get political or whatever. It's like, you go into a country to find Saddam Hussein, you get him, and people are still dying. That's kind of what's going on here in the sense that, I don't think it's a dir- it's meant to be a direct one-to-one comparison, but it's just that idea of, you can keep killing people all day, and people are still just going to keep dying, and it's not going to accomplish anything, if that's your whole kind of goal, to just keep shooting people until you find the right person to get shot. Yeah, uh,
1: The notion
4: of you, you can't permanently create change without changing the institution in this case is the you know the mob itself and police department I think there's there he might be saying something about the excess of police force versus by the book I, I think this is this works to the movie's benefit because the movie borders on operatic at points like there's literally opera music played in this movie while Nicholson is snorting cocaine and because all the characters at this point have effectively lost control I think it needed to be this over the top. And I don't think this is – I don't think it's him being Tarantino because Tarantino, it it is so – it's so in your face. This is more of him trying to be Sam Peckinpah than Tarantino.
2: Well, and what I think is what he's doing, I think he's he's sort of just kind of faking you out. I mean, in a way, just because this is not the ending of the movie. The movie keeps going on. And it's so explosive that it makes you think that this must be – It and then it's, it's of course not, and that's kind of the thing. And I remember the first time I saw this when Damon kills Costello, it's like, you're like, oh shit, but that's not, that can't be the ending, but it's like there's been so much bloodshed and so many explosions that you're like, hey, that,
1: that,
2: this feels like this is where a normal movie it would be, but that's sort of like what he's saying about how these kind of operations go. It's like, okay, eventually you kill the guy, then what? Or as, as he puts it in the movie, all that murdering and fucking and no sons, which is kind of some of the psychological, sort of sexual kind of things going on about it. It's like just killing and killing in place of actually kind of starting a new life. And I think it's notable that there is a pregnancy that occurs in this movie and that we don't see any child actually be born. And, and the way that that also ties into the two characters, the one who's almost certainly the actual father of the kid versus the one who thinks he is, and how that ties into the idea of sort of life versus killing, creating life versus killing. And and this is also where we know for sure that Costello is an FBI informant and Damon shoots him and becomes seemingly a local hero. He's They brought down the big guy. It seems like the operation is over and it's time to give Costigan his life back, as he keeps putting it, he just wants his life back, which t- ties into what I was saying earlier about the DiCaprio character not being a tough guy, is that... I don't know how long actually this movie is meant to take place over. It seems like, I mean, and when I say this movie, I mean the bulk of the plot, not the flashbacks and stuff. It seems like maybe a few months, maybe. It really doesn't seem like that long. And he's already completely burnt out, ready to get out of this situation. And in Infernal Affairs, he's been undercover for 10 years. And he seems way less burnt out in that movie. And he's been doing it for 10 years. And so the the DiCaprio character is not, despite what, Sheen and Wahlberg recruited for, he's actually not cut out for this line of work at all, which is, I think, why he ends up meeting the fate that he meets, is that he doesn't, he actually doesn't have the kind of emotional strength or toughness to to be able to do it. So he's not, he's not able to do that, but he is able to father the child, which I think is kind of what's going on. I think there's a lot going on in this movie that gets kind of, it's under the surface because there's so much exciting crime thriller stuff going on on the surface that the, some of the psychological stakes and stuff, I don't think that the film is failing to show them. It's just that people are watching him, and you watch it a couple times before you can really appreciate it. But he wants his life back, and they're ready to end the operation and everything. But that's when he realizes, when he sees the envelope that has the misspelling of citizens on it, that's when DiCaprio realizes that Damon is the guy who he was going to arrest in Chinatown that night, so he knows that he has to leave because otherwise he's going to get killed. So now they both know who the other guy is, but they don't go face-to-face until they arrange to meet on the same rooftop where and died, and Costigan makes the choice to arrest him even though he's not actually a police officer, which I think is him choosing as a character who he's going to be. This is who he is. He's not the gangster. He's not that kind of guy. And this is where Anthony Anderson goes up, perhaps distractingly, I don't know. This showdown with them on the roof, I think, is really. Interestingly done, because at this
4: point, Damon is such an asshole. He's so capable. He's basically. His nose is most likely broken. And he's still yelling shit at him.
2: Yeah, he really, yeah.
4: I love when DiCaprio goes, shut
2: the fuck up, and hits him three times in the face. It's so funny. He's going to turn him in, and this is where we also see the psychological kind of descent of both characters, because Damon is telling him, just fucking kill me now
1: because
2: he realizes, like, this whole time he's built his career of being the perfect cop, the hero, the good guy, and everything, and it's all going to come crashing down. he would rather just die than have his reputation ruined in this way. But DiCaprio decides he's going to abide by the letter of the law, but then, bam, he gets shot in the head, and as the elevator doors open, by...
4: This is an identical shot, too, from Infernal Affairs, where they cut to him on the ground and the doors are trying to close?
2: Yes, that part is, yes, yes. And uh, Although the actual shot, the the shooting is done very differently because in the, in the internal affairs it's a black screen. But then the shot of the body, that is exactly the same. You're right. And we find out that one of the other troopers in the state police, played by James Badgedale, he was also a mole the whole time that Costello had multiple moles in the operation, which makes perfect sense. And, and, and reveals like, that we only have one small extent of the whole story. I mean, I think this ties in again to the war on terror thing. There's fucking aspects of what's going on that we don't even have any fucking clue about because we're all focusing on the flashiest aspects of it we don't even realize that there's whatever. Anyways, and that I think is a nice touch and Anthony Anderson gets killed, Caprio's been killed and then Damon in a quick reversal kills James Badgedale killing anybody who has any knowledge of his past identity and then setting himself up to be the hero and so magnanimously recommending Trooper William Cost again for the Medal of Merit which I think is such a great slimy touch.
4: Scumbag move he could pull.
2: Yeah. And at the funeral for Costigan, who also was able to reveal before he died, was able to reveal the depths of Damon's deception to Madeline, his girlfriend. So she, in a callback to the third man, great crime film, 40s, she walks right past Sullivan, leaving him to be alone as he has made himself alone. And after DiCaprio is buried as a hero, Damon goes back to his apartment with his loaf of French bread, and opens his door to find that he has someone waiting for him in his apartment. None other than Sergeant dignum himself, played by Mark Wahlberg, who is there with a gun and shoots him in the head, but not before Damon tells him, What is he thinking? He's like, Oh, just fucking do it. Know. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. yeah I, wish, I love the way Damon plays these last couple scenes. It's just the ultimate slime ball. Shoots him in the head, Wahlberg puts on his mask. Leaves the apartment, doesn't even bother closing the door, and Damon lies there, blood pooling from his head, and then reverse shot to the open window of his terrace apartment overlooking the Golden Dome State House. and then a rat
3: appears, perhaps symbolic... Ugh where do we
2: stand on
3: the rat guys i fucking hate it i hate it with a fucking passion this is him going right back to the aviator where he has to have the symbolism and of course there's a rat up there and you know what it could mean you know matt damon has spent this entire movie just saying all i want is an apartment to overlook the city all i want is to be successful in this city and you could look at this as hey no matter where you go no matter how clean no matter how rich you are somehow some way a rat can find its way into your operation i think that's what he's trying to say but to spend a ton of cgi money to make this rat move across the screen it's fucking deplorable i hate the end of this movie the last 20 minutes of this movie just completely lost me
2: could you explain that other than just specifically the rat being obvious symbolism
3: everything you described of he turns this way he gets shot he turns this way he gets shot there's no real redeeming quality about the end of this movie and how everybody is killed at the end of it it leaves me feel nothing for anybody by the end of it once we learn that Matt Damon's fucked because the only one who knows of his real life self and the only one who knows he's actually a quote unquote good guy is Mark Wahlberg that is a huge revelation and that should be a source of tension but from that point on this movie just hits the skids for me i don't like the way vera formiga's characters wrapped up i don't like dicaprio by the end of it the final scene with nicholson and dicaprio i thought was a little eh. There there's just nothing about the end of this movie that moved me at all and i love the setup to it that's the crazy thing about it do
2: you know about the ending of the original
4: hong kong
3: film no i was going to ask you about that actually before you do that though let's uh let, let, matt be the tiebreaker here how do you feel about the end of this movie I agree with Mike. Yeah,
4: Final Shot is a bit on the nose. I think A it's, bit?
3: It's, it's as blatant
4: as being, pu- like, Matt Damon when he gets pistol a- whipped. It's its that equivalent. Yeah. But the movie, I think it's making the point that, sort of like I said with the shootout, everything is cyclical. As long as there's organized crime and as long as there are cops, people are just going to keep dropping by the wayside regardless of circumstance. I think there, there's still just so much... Pulpy tension in this third act with the. There's the scene with the mutual picking up of the phones and nobody wants to say anything. There's the scene where Costello just pulls a gun on on Costigan and is like, Yeah, you got something you want to ask me? I think the way everyone turns on each other is what keeps this movie going. And for me, it doesn't have. A point of comparison for me would be it doesn't have Return of the King syndrome, where, yeah, there are all multiple endings, but everything feels warranted because. So much has to happen. You can't leave anyone standing outside of Mark Wahlberg because he is part of neither organization now because he has left the police force. Yeah. So he is he is his own third party that gets to clear the deck,
1: so to speak.
2: Yeah. That's why I think him leaving the police force is really important because it's – yeah, both of the institutions have become so irredeemable, which is really what I think more of the rat being above the state houses. It, it's the same – Thing. The the capital, the state, the law and order, it's the same thing as the rest. They're yeah, interchangeable.
4: Also, this is very much a movie framed from the edible narrative, where once the father figures are gone, it's only a matter of time before the sons are wiped out.
2: Yeah, it is very relevant to war time situations, because war is all about fathers sending sons to die. For their sort of ideals or objectives or whatever you know the generals are always in their 60s and the people who get shot are always teenagers or in their 20s and that's kind of what's going on here too but then everybody ends up dying because it's like there's no way out there's no way to win this kind of war between this situation and the ending of the original film is very it's the same up until the undercover cop the dicaprio character gets killed and the Damon character, the difference with that character, the rat, you know, the Damon character, he gets away with it. And the last scene of the movie is him at the funeral for the DiCaprio analog character. And he is completely triumphant as a police officer, but he remembers when he was at the Academy, and in this version of the story, the two were friends at the Academy together. And he remembers at the Academy when the One guy was, quote, kicked out, unquote, and he thinks to himself currently in the current moment, that is who I want to be. So he has regret for having not been an honest cop in the way that the DiCaprio analog character was. And the last actual moment of the film is after that, you see a title screen that says that in Buddhism, the lowest kind of hell is not dying. It's living forever with the sufferings of guilt and things like that. And that is the punishment for that character, is that basically he doesn't die. He's triumphant in the sense of he is not going to be killed and he's not going to lose his job or anything like that. He's not going to get caught, seemingly. But he has to permanently live with the guilt of having killed all these people and everything like that. There were some people who, at I man since then, have thought of the ending of the American movie, which is so different, as being kind of an attempt to sort of have the bad guy die, have the Damon character get shot and die. But in some ways, I think this is actually a darker ending than the Infernal Affairs type ending because this movie has such a bleak perspective on human institutions and on human interactions. And the Damon character is so completely without any kind of redemption. He doesn't even feel any regret about anything that he's done at the end of the movie. He's a complete sociopath, and he gets shot. and He doesn't even have that regret. He literally is just like, just get it done with, just get it over. It's not even like manly, it's just kind of it's like, all right, okay. So this movie kind of takes place in a world where the people who do terrible things in, in our world, they don't even feel guilt over him. It's not, they don't even have that even moment of possible conscience. And it's such a bleak kind of perspective, and that's, I think, why the tone of the movie with the sort of black comic approach and how quotable these lines are is so uh, important in helping this movie sort of go down and not just be completely harrowing. And I think it seems like audiences generally, I mean, it was a huge hit, and Oscar liked it a little. I think that that was... As with anything with Oscar, it's time and a place. Like things, you hit in the right year and you make all the difference. You hit in the wrong year, you can get come home empty-handed. But yeah, this is the movie that was, was sort of a culmination in a lot of ways. And this is Scorsese doing a commercial-type movie, seemingly, although I think that, well, we'll get into maybe the next one about what ends up happening when Scorsese does something that does not on the surface seem like a prestige play. And
4: that's The Departed for you. All right, Matt, on a scale of 1 to 10, what do you think of The Departed? You know, every once in a while there comes around a movie that makes me realize why I love movies, and this falls into that category for me, where do I think this is Scorsese's magnum opus? No. But Adam talked about this on our introductory show. When I go to a movie, to a certain extent, I do at the end of the day want to just be entertained. And this is one of the most entertaining movies I have ever seen. As far as, if you like pulpy elements, which I do, they're there in spades. If you like the classical approach of using Oedipal stories or borrowing from the Greeks. The outline for this movie, it's absolutely there. Do I like watching big-name stars yell obscenities? You're goddamn right I do. Especially when the guy who is the oldest is also the most profane and riveting thing on screen. If you're looking for meaning in between all the blood, I think there is there. At the end of the day, the message is it's hard out there for a rat to borrow from Anthony Anderson's movie from a year prior, Hustle and Flow. They stay true to their mission, Leo does, at the end of the day, cost again. But the evil he does in the name of good, that's something he ultimately can't get rid of. And same goes for Matt Damon. Duplicity and betrayal, they're always going to get to you. It's like the, you know, what does a liar do when he's dead? He lies still. This is, for me, the definition of a 10 out of 10. I adore this movie so much. And, yeah, I could talk about how much I don't like the final shot. And I, I sort of have said, yeah, its it's very blunt. But it is a movie that is made with the sheer amount of craftsmanship that Scorsese is known for, but combining it with something that I think appeals to a, a general audience. And I think that is that is partially why this movie a, made so much money, and it did win Best Picture, among other reasons. But I think those two are at the forefront. So th- this is one of my favorite movies, and it is absolutely a 10 out of 10 for me. 10 out of 10, wow. How many times have you given those out? I seldom give them out. I think it's very
3: even, seldom. This is to, shocking.
4: Yeah, you go back to the binge days, I think I gave maybe four of them out. And it, and the ones I did were like Spider-Verse, which was very much its own thing. I did give X-Men Days of Future Past of all things a 10 out of 10, just because I think it encompasses everything I love about both those movies and, and, the, and those comics. These are the movies I've given a 10 out of 10 to, not including this. Toy Story 2, Before Sunset, Logan, and Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, X-Men Days of Future Past. Part of that is contextually within those series, but sure. I think Toy Story 2 and Before Sunset are, you ask me, some of the most perfect movies out there. A 10 out of 10 doesn't mean it's perfect. I know that sounds ridiculous when I say that, but I think you can have a movie that is so enveloping and inviting that you are more than willing to overlook some of the smaller aspects that maybe would stick out if it wasn't so such a fun ride. So yeah, that, that's my mic drop, everybody. If you were wondering Oh why- no, Yeah. If you're wondering why I wanted to talk about this movie so much, this is something I would love to do a commentary track on in the future. One of the first things I wrote in college was a retrospective look back at this movie. If I can ever find it, because Lord knows the university of Rhode Island's newspaper is hard to track down archives. I'll certainly look for it, but this is, you know, it's also nostalgic for its roots and it's also very contemporary. So it's why I love going to the movie.
2: Very nice. I picture Nicole Kidman now walking through the rain to sit down and same thing. This is, Heartbreak feels good. Getting shot in the head by Mark Wahlberg feels good in a place like this.
3: Garrett all right, let's look at the Academy Award nominees for Best Picture that year. We have, in addition to The Departed, we had Letters from Irojima, The Queen, Babel, Little Miss Sunshine. I would say out of those five films, The Departed is the le- least problematic. And I would agree in that I think the Oscars given to Martin Scorsese for this movie were probably more of a lifetime achievement award than anything. I'm not going to deny that this movie... A lot of what Matt said in that it is very watchable. I have never seen a miscasting go so well with Jack Nicholson. We he even mentioned when he makes his face like a rat in this movie. That was the moment in the theater that honestly got the biggest reaction was when he made that face like a rat and wow. everybody just started laughing so hard. Obviously till the end. But then once you, again, I'll say it again, it, is, it has one of the most cynical endings I've ever seen in a movie. And that's not a compliment to it. I, I think he just goes way overboard. I'm not against all the violence and everything. I just hate how every single fucking person dies in this movie. Except for the Mark Wahlberg character. And we'll talk about maybe the future of that character that they had in mind for. It. And even the love story in this, my god, the character of Madeline is so bad. She's almost toxic to this movie in my eyes. Yeah, I know they combined two characters into her. God damn. I know this movie's is o- about two and a half hours. Fucking make the second character because combining those characters did not do this movie any justice whatsoever. Still, very watchable film. I, it, it's a solid 7 out of 10 because of its watchability. Because you're seeing a bunch of actors at their height doing great work. I think DiCaprio does pretty good work. But I think out of the movies that we have reviewed of him, this is definitely the most watchable out of those. But again, that's not a compliment, especially for something that won Best Picture that year. Um, I'll go 7 out of 10 for The Departed.
1: All
2: right. This is one where I have seen this movie a lot of times, so it should not be a surprise that I like it. It'd be weird if I "I hate this movie and I keep watching it. I think this is a fantastically made film. It's a triumph a Vatidake by Thelma Skinmaker, A Triumph of Direction by Martin Scorsese, uh, a great, fantastic ensemble cast that's, I think, just about universally great. To speak of the man of the hour, Leonardo DiCaprio. I think this is so far, out of the ones we've seen, I think this is the best of his performances for out of the three we've done so far. And I think that the way that this film is simultaneously so watchable, so quotable, so entertaining while also getting out all of the various psychological and under-the-surface meanings of all these things. That is within the, the tradition of the great crime thrillers of the Hayes Code era in the way that they were able to get in some really dark implications through entertaining surface-level substances, but with an incredibly dark ending. I would agree, one of the most cynical films of its kind. That's a good thing. And this is really, really excellent. And I have debated on back and forth over the years on how, what I think about this one in comparison to The Aviator, like which one I like more. Like, And I think that there's different things to be said about them in different ways. I think The Aviator is, is more of a, a triumph of cinematography. This is more of a triumph of editing. This is more of an acting movie. That one is impressive on the, on the craft level in terms of costuming and everything like that. And I think ultimately they're about equally... Fantastic. I'm not going to go so far as to do the 10 out of 10 because a couple things are, I guess for Scorsese, there's only a few films that I would save the 10 out of 10 for just because, you know, you got to ration out a little bit. But I think this is fantastic. This is a 9 out of 10. And I had an excellent time revisiting it, an excellent time revisiting it literally every time I visit it. So, Yeah, 9 out of 10.
3: All right. I I heard there were just discussions of a sequel. Get into that, Mike. What exactly happened with that? It it Was it Wahlberg that was getting involved with it? Yeah, so what had happened was that, I mean,
2: basically, it's the one character who survives. Mark Wahlberg, they were like, well, you know, there could be a sequel with that character. Now, in fairness, Alec Baldwin also survives, but I don't know necessarily where that character goes. There was discussion about doing a sequel that would follow the Wahlberg character as the main character and, they were going to bring, and William Monaghan was brought back to write it, and Wahlberg was really enthusiastic about starring in it, as you could probably expect. And Scorsese was not interested in directing it, I think just because he had a very, like, stressful time making this. And also, him doing a sequel does not seem like the kind of thing that he'd be interested in, just in general. But the idea behind it was that we, they never actually wrote a script but they had, you know, basically an idea. And Monahan said that it would have taken place both during the events of The Departed and afterwards. That part of it would have been showing what was going on with Wahlberg's character in the parts of The Departed where he was off screen, but that it would continue after the events of The Departed and go on further. There was some sort of indication that it was going to involve maybe political corruption, Which makes a lot of sense because Whitey Bulger's brother, Billy, was a very influential and high-ranking member of the Massachusetts State Senate. So he was a very important political actor in Massachusetts for 40 years. His brother was the fucking head of the Irish mob. And so that was, I'm sure, would have been an inspiration to the plot. But the idea behind it was Wahlberg was going to be the lead, Brad Pitt was going to play a part, and they were going to get Robert De Niro to play a part, too. So, I mean, you talk about how would you possibly top the cast this one? Whether that tops it or not, I mean, that's a pretty comparable cast right there. And they went into Warner Brothers and they pitched it. And the way that Wahlberg, last week, while well, he was doing press for uh, Un, what's it called? Uncharted, he talked about how, revealed the story of what happened with that one, which was that they went into Warner Brothers to do the pitch for the sequel. And according to Walberg, at least, Monaghan basically really whiffed on the pitch because he didn't come in with a really detailed kind of story description because he says that that's not how he likes to pitch things. But apparently that's what the management at Warner Brothers was really into at the time was they wanted really kind of specific, detailed pitches. And Monaghan just kind of came in with something vague. And so they said that the meeting didn't go well. And that was basically the end of that. It's probably been too long now it's been 16 years or whatever but you know i wouldn't be opposed to some sort of sequel i mean i there's a chance it would be really terrible but you know there's a chance it could be really good too so i don't know i mean
3: i think that you know what you do with a cast of characters this big if you're going to do a sequel or even a prequel do it in a tv form
2: all right well that you makes know. a lot of sense yeah there were two sequels to the original hong kong film or one of which was actually a prequel there's there's a prequel and a, and a sequel to it but I don't really know what those are about, but I do think that that is a relevant factor. That there was precedent for that. I don't think that the, the idea that Monahan and Wahlberg had developed had anything to do with those, but who knows. Well, next week, we're going to be taking a visit to Shutter Island. Yeah, that's right. We're not losing the accents, people. We're keeping them. We're going to be paying a visit to Shutter Island and with some duly appointed federal marshals. And uh, I'm looking forward to it. I don't know if we want to get too much into what we think about Shutter Island before. Have you, I assume you guys have already seen it?
3: Yes, yeah. I already saw it. Yeah. I saw it in theaters. I was pretty excited for it, actually. It, it got quite a bit of press leading up to it, got quite a bit of hype. Walked in, really excited for what I was about to see.
4: And we'll see how that yeah. plays out yeah. next yeah next week. Yeah, my thoughts are pretty much identical to Garrett. I was very stoked to see this. It looked considerably different from what Scorsese had been doing. I had not read the book, but I had seen some of the other Dennis Lehane adaptations, so I knew he was, he had some good material to work with and very intriguing cast across the board, so I was very interested in seeing this.
2: Yeah, I was, I mean, I was pumped. And it was one of those trailers, I, they pushed the movie back, right? So it was one of those trailers that I saw fucking twelve times because it was just like they were like just playing the trailer for months and months in theaters, and so it just your your level of hype gets kind of increasing. Or at least mine mine was, you know what I mean. Until next week, when we discuss Shutter Islands, I ask you this: You do well in school, so did I. They call that a podcast. You're not one for tears,
0: and well. Neither am I, so it's best to come out with it. Let's be honest. It's all been a grand adventure, but it couldn't
3: possibly last.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast, exclusively on Percolated Media. Well done. Join us next week for an entirely new review.
3: Which would be worse, to live as a monster or to die as a good man? And if
0: you would be so kind please take a moment to give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others to find and discover these podcasts. I got this rat, this annoying, fucking rat. The three men in a retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, adam and nathan
1: don't tell me i can't do it don't tell me it can't be done
0: edited by garrett that's a sorry looking pelt VoiceOvers by Adam. This is Howard Hughes. Howard and I were just discussing how he wants me to pull a camera out of my ass. The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such. Hunt the flesh, kill the flesh, eat the flesh, that's the uh, male sex all over.
1: The way of the future. The way of the future. The way of the future. The way of the
2: future. Gangster Whitey Bulger, who at the time was, it was unknown if he was even like alive or dead.
3: Didn't Monaghan also write The Recruit as well with Uh, Al Pacino? I seem to remember. He didn't know. his, he didn't. His
4: first published script is Kingdom of Heaven if you go on his IMDb program.
3: Okay. Oh, well, had... The
4: Recruit stars Bridget Moynihan. That might be who what well, you're
2: thinking of, but... Mm-hmm. It, it's so quotable. This is like the fucking most quotable movie. Or it's like one of the most
4: quotable movies
2: of the past 20 years, I'd say. Oh, try, um, try
4: living around here. It, it, this movie was inescapable. Yeah. That Hire. makes a lot of sense. Hire. Between this
3: and Boondock Saints, I bet you just couldn't go anywhere without hearing something from either yeah. of those films.
4: I miss the days sidebar because we we love tangents. I miss the days when nobody fucking knew what the Boondock Saints was. And <laughs> yeah, then all me of a too. sudden fucking I don't know if Oprah went on her show and said five <laughs> dollars 50 of Boondock Saints for everybody. And all of a sudden it became this cultural phenomenon for it's the biggest ratio of cultural phenomenon to shitty cinematic filmmaking. I think it exists. But that <laughs>
2: documentary is so good. Oh, the documentary is the so Overnight, much good. Overnight, it makes it worth it. Maybe. Maybe it doesn't make it worth it. But I love the part in the documentary where Troy Duffy is at the, like, community college film class, and he's like, some of you are never going to make it in the movie industry.
4: And he just picks one, one random guy and goes, you, you're never going to make it. And I just think that's so it's terrible. He's wearing overalls, and he's yelling, like, get that fat fuck Weinstein on the phone. Like, it's... You, it makes total sense why that movie is as <laughs> scattershot and over-the-top as it is. Right. I, didn't, I didn't
3: I didn't mean to start this, but go ahead, Mike. What, what else?
4: <laughs> no, it's just the point of comparison. Mm-hmm. I wonder uh, yeah. if it's actually also why this was not set in New York and why they switched to Boston, because that is a stark contrast. Despite what people think, New York and Boston are two very different cities. Yes, they
2: are. I've never been to Boston.
1: So oh, oh drown Ground us to a halt, though. Oh.
4: <laughs> yeah. It, he's not revealed to be an informant in Infernal Affairs? Correct, yeah. That is entirely a machination of Whitey Bulger. Yep. And it's so funny that, you know, we got the Whitey Bulger movie about a decade later, officially. And this is how you would have imagined Johnny Depp playing it, where he's so over-the-top and theatrical, but then you watch it and you're like, oh, wow, he's really... Makeup notwithstanding, he's playing it very down low. That movie is odd. That movie is kind of weirdly—it's it's very sloppy, but I think yeah. Johnny, Johnny Depp's very good at it.
2: And uh, well, also, I guess I don't want to get us off on too much of a tangent. But you know about how Ben Affleck was going to direct a uh, film about Whitey Bulger with Matt Damon playing Bulger and yeah, that, that, Kate? Surprising. Yeah, yeah. And then that got that got shelved because of. Uh, it, they got they got Chris Nolan, Howard Hughes. Their film got had to be put on the shelf because Johnny Depp and Scott Cooper beat him to it. But anyways, that's that's a, that's a tangent of tangents there.
1: The mm-hmm. another
2: great exchange is the one between Wahlberg and Baldwin, where he goes, he, where he says, he says, oh, what's the beginning of it? He goes, this, How, this how's your shit mother?
4: This shithole has more
2: leaks than the Iraqi Navy. Oh, well, there's that, but there's also the part where he, he goes, uh, let me get pull it up here. Thank you, IMDB, for having it, I'm sure. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, he goes, fuck yourself. Mm-hmm. And I guess this is also sort of talking about, right, hold on just a second, guys, sorry, my bad.
3: Starting coke on the other line. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. He's got he's got two hookers on either side of him right about now.
2: Hello, yes.
3: Or as we call them at work, Fourteens. All right, go ahead.
4: Uh, I just heard the end of that. I don't know what's going on. Um, <laughs> you don't want to know. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so. Uh,
2: mmm. And Shutter Island. Interestingly, oh, I was going to say that it was the first Scorsese film I saw in theaters, but that's actually not true because I saw Shine a Light, his Rolling Stones concert oh, film. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but that's we're not we will not be covering that one unless unless to my knowledge, DiCaprio filled in on the drums for uh, the Stones at that concert. I, of, <laughs> but I don't believe that's correct. I would have to consult the DVD.
1: hmm. Your level of
3: hype.
2: It's kind of increasing, or at least mine. Mine was, you know what I mean? I, yeah. I, yeah, yeah, exactly.
3: All right, so go ahead, just wrap it up, sir. All right, we uh, pick one of these quotes real quick. Uh, I have one, but then I caught it.
2: Okay, wait. I want to make sure I have the right sign off again. So it's it's until next week, and then I say the thing, right?
3: Correct. Okay, got it. Thank you for your attention. So, say until next week when we discuss Shutter Island and then you go into it. Well, let me make sure I have the quote here.
2: <laughs> <Something like that. laughs> like,
3: it's There's just, so many quotable lines in this. I don't know how you could scour well, now, so much.
2: I, yeah, it. right now I'm like, now I'm like, why? Well, I want to pick the best You know what I mean? It's like when you're like yeah. a store and whatever. Um, and also one that doesn't involve like a, like an exchange. Uh, you know what I mean? Because like, what I want to yeah. do is I want to do the part where he goes, you do well in school? Yeah, so do I. They call that a podcast, but I can't
3: do there that. There you oh, go. Can I do that one? You can do whatever you want. What do yourself. you guys
2: have to respond for that one? Oh, I don't know. Do whatever you want. All right, all right, all right. All right. Sure. All right. Uh, until next week. Wait. Sorry, shit, sorry. Until next week. I'm going to say Shutter Island and then the line, right?
3: Until next week when we discuss Shutter Island. I've uh,
2: got it. Okay. Yeah. Um, until next week when we discuss Shutter Islands. I ask you this. You do well in school? So did I.
1: They call that a podcast.